welcome to Talk is Jericho's The Pot of Thunder and Rock and Roll, and we're doing true crime today. I got a great guest. Her name is Stephanie Harlow, and you might recognize her from her YouTube channel and her podcast, Crime Weekly. She goes in-depth on all kinds of true crime cases. Uh, she was also in the Cecil Hotel documentary on Netflix. That's where I saw her first. So I invited her on Talk is Jericho to take us deep into the story of Charles Manson and the Manson family. Pretty much everyone knows the story of Charles Manson and his cult. Uh, they committed a series of nine murders over uh, July and August of 1969, most famously that of actor Sharon Tate, who was pregnant at the time and married to director Roman Polanski. You'll find out how Sharon and her friends ended up in the crosshairs of the Manson family. Manson also had his crazy interpretation of the Beatles' Helter Skelter song and lyrics and started using the term Helter Skelter to describe the race war he wanted to begin. Uh, he was an aspiring musician and befriended Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys and actually lived in Dennis's house for a while. It's a very weird, crazy, and gruesome story. Stephanie's going to share some of the details surrounding Manson's life and the formation of his cult. She's got background info on his childhood, more details about his unlikely friendship with Dennis Wilson, uh, how Manson's use of Helter Skelter started, and of course details from the investigation, the crime scenes, the trial, and ultimately the sentencing that resulted in Manson and convicted family members serving life in prison, uh, where Manson died in November of 2017. He was never released. Here we go with Stephanie Harlow and the story of Charles Manson and the Manson family murders on Talk is Jericho now. So I was watching the Netflix uh, special on the Cecil Hotel, and I saw a lot of kind of uh, experts talking about all the different mysteries within the hotel, and one of them was Stephanie Harlow. And I contacted you because I wanted to originally talk about the Cecil Hotel because I, I was watching it, and like after about the second episode, I was like, I want to find like I want to find Stephanie. Or there was a couple other people, and then we find out that the tragedy was more mental health based, that sort of thing. But the true crime element at first was what really grabbed me about that whole show and that whole situation. How did you get involved in it in the first place? Well, they contacted me about a year ago. So right before COVID hit, they contacted me and they said, let's get you out to New York City, get you to Netflix Studios, interview you for uh, this show. And then it just so happened that I think a week later, we all went under quarantine. So right. <laughs> we had to do it from home. So a couple of those clips, uh, you see me in the the show, they're from my video. I only did one video on Alisa Lamb. Um, and then where I'm dressed differently, those are our interviews that I had to do from mm -hmm. home, even though they, they do make it seem sort of like they're like they're from videos. But I only did one video on Elisa Lam, and it was uh, two years ago for Halloween, which is uh, something I do in October. Spookier cases. Typically, I stick to straight Halloween. That's great. Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> Typically, I stick to straight or true crime um, mysteries and things like that. But in, in October, I do more of like maybe there's something supernatural to it. And the Elisa Lamb case, even just a year ago, because a lot of the stuff they they revealed on the Netflix special, we had no idea about mm. um, the fact that she was leaving letters and things like that on her roommate's bed, uh, that she was not letting them into the room, that she got removed from a live show uh because of the way she was acting nobody knew that so mm. um it was uh it was definitely a revelation and i know that i mean i've gotten a lot of heat for it for you know oh why are you all speculating 
me personally, I didn't get into the Elisa Lamb case or cover it until so long after. So there was no speculation there. It was more just storytelling uh, right. what happened and what the theories were. And, um, you know, this morbid uh, situation with the musician, um, that did not start on YouTube. That started on Facebook and Reddit very shortly after everyone found out that, that she was in the water tank. So mm. uh, that didn't start on YouTube either. And I'm getting people saying, are you going to apologize to Morbid? And I'm over here like, <laughs> I never, never even mentioned him in my video. And the only reason I talked about it on the show was because I was explaining uh, the internet response to uh, his alleged connection. So it was it was interesting. It was a great experience. It still is a very strange case. Um, the mental health aspect obviously makes it seem less mysterious. But, you know, I always did wonder why the LAPD said that they searched the hotel from top to bottom and brought police dogs to the roof of the hotel but failed to look in the water mm-hmm. tanks. Because I promise you, if if a web sleuth had been up there, we would have been up in those water tanks <laughs> looking into them just because you're not searching top to bottom if you if you didn't check. Well, and, and that's the thing. And you're right, Stephanie. And, and obviously, there's, there's lots for us to talk about today. But even just the fact that when you see that fire escape and the ladder going up the side of the hotel, I mean, I don't care who you are or how much mental issue. That's just like... It's almost, uh, I mean, not the danger element of it, but it's a rickety little ladder climbing up a, a full story of a, of a hotel. That takes a lot of conviction. You know what I mean? That's not somebody, not to be crass, but if you're that depressed, you could just throw yourself out of the window rather than climbing up this dangerous ladder to then go jump into a water tank. Yeah, I don't think she went into the water tank with the intention to take her own life. I think it was an accident. Yeah. I also have my doubts as to whether she climbed the fire escape onto the building because I know that the manager of the Cecil made a big show of telling everybody how, no, there's no way she could have gone through the door to the roof because there's an alarm. And and that was a big focus because the Cecil Hotel kept saying that door is alarmed. You can't go through it without, you know, the alarm going off and alerting the front desk. Uh, that was proven to not be the case. Uh, people, not me, because I don't live in LA, but people who lived around that area, they went to the Cecil Hotel and they had no issues getting up onto the roof mm. without, you know, gotcha. making any alarms go off. So I think that's probably the more probable way that she would have gotten up there. She just saw a door and took it, found herself on the roof. And then in her state, you know, she was like, oh, this is interesting. Let me climb up there and, and see. But even the ladder to get up to the water tank is very rickety. And those water tanks are high. I mean, they don't look it from an aerial mm-hmm. perspective. They're quite high. So I still think that there's something really to and that elevator footage. Oh, my goodness. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very riveting documentary, no matter what uh, stance you take on it. But um I guess just another question is, is how did you become kind of a true crime expert, so to speak? On YouTube? When did I start and how did I start on YouTube? So that so you actually became like a YouTube true crime expert doing most of it on online then? Yeah. So I was doing it personally beforehand. Um, I'm just the person, the kind of personality I am is I, I can't have half of the story. I need to know everything mm-hmm. because I like speculating and I like coming up with theories. And I, I don't feel like I can come up with theories unless I have the full story. So even in high school during history class, which was my favorite, they would give you these kind of like, I don't know, Wikipedia recitations of these of these like historical events in school. You know, right. obviously they can't spend too much time. That's how the education system is. But 
uh, I would always have questions and I'd have to go and do my own research. And even at, you know, 13, 14, 15, I was reading these entire books on historical events, uh, you know, Queen Isabella of Spain and Henry VIII of England, just to figure out everything about it. And so I just thought one day I enjoy telling these stories. I enjoy finding out about them. I think they're so interesting. And then I tell people around them, like my mom or my boyfriends, and they'd be like, okay, (laughs) we didn't need to know that much. And so I I saw on YouTube that people were covering true crime, but once again, it was, you know, shorter videos, 25, 30 minutes. And that's fine because some people only have 25, 30 minutes and some people aren't like me and they just want the overview. But for me, I said, well, why don't I make videos where it's like the whole story? hour-long videos that are in three, four parts, because I'm sure there's people out there who are like me. And and turns out that there was, and you know, my audience comes to me because they know I do really deep dives and I go over all the details and I kind of put it together in a format that's easy to understand because I, I am a writer first and foremost. So it's fun and it's nice to have the community. And some of these cases I cover are unsolved. So if we can raise awareness where one person out there hears something or sees something and says, oh, I actually... I know this person or I saw something that night, then they can come forward. And if it helps just even shine a light on one of these unsolved cases, then I, I feel like that, that's amazing. No, it's, uh, I think it's something that like, like I know, for, for example, a lot of my listeners love the true crime element. I've always been obsessed with it. I used to be a guy, I grew up in Canada. His name was, was Max Haynes. And every Sunday you'd have the Max Haynes, you know, true crime in the in the back of the paper, and you read the whole thing. So it's always been something that I've been into, and that's why I thought it'd be so great for us to have a chat. And I, I kind of threw it out there: what what do you think we should talk about? And you mentioned, which is probably the most famous killer, maybe in in American pop culture history, in Charles Manson. And it's funny because if you look through the Manson murders, he actually didn't really murder anybody in that, but there's so much more to this guy and so much legend story. I mean, once upon a time in Hollywood that came out last year by Tarantino was kind of his version of the Manson murders and that sort of thing. But um, I guess just to pop in with you, why is this case become such a part of pop culture lexicon when there's been hundreds of other murders like it similar to it and you know however you might put it why is manson yeah yeah well first of all he he did kill people he just didn't kill any of the people that night you know that that are the most uh he he did he did kill some people um and and tried to kill some people and failed but in general i think and and i did a six-part series on the manson family i went in deep (laughs) i was Because it's truly an interesting story from beginning to end. His origin story, and I think I really think that exactly what you said, he never actually committed these murders himself, yet he was able to convince so many other people to take part in something that these kids, you know, they were kind of like counterculture at the time. They were hippies. They're supposed to be about peace and love. They all came from a childhood and a background and a family life where they felt they were missing something, you know, they didn't have love, they didn't have attention, they didn't feel like they had what they needed. And so they sought that out in other places. And unfortunately for them, and for their victims, they ended up hooking up with Charles Manson. So I think that's so 
just cults in general are incredibly compelling to people because we all sit here and we're like, never me, never me would mm-hmm. I ever be in a cult. But I mean, I, I mean, you don't know, right? Right. I'm sure all those other people were like, no, of course I wouldn't join a cult. And and the things that he put them through even before the murders were just insane. You know, at any part of this time, he's got these girls digging through garbages to get food. He's got his girls um, having sex with random bikers just to get drugs in return all the sorts of things that he put these people through at any given point i feel like i would have been like all right this Mm. is this is not working for me and some of them did but i think it compels people what is the difference between a person who ends up you know giving their all to this kind of cult-like environment and and what's the difference between them and somebody who who doesn't is there a difference well, yeah, I, I just had India Oxenberg on for the for the Nivium cult, and she said the same thing. Like, you don't ever set out to join a cult, and she, in her case, was you don't have to be coming from a broken home, and you don't have to be, you know, an underprivileged child or whatever to get in there. And a lot of these people in the Manson family fit in that category. These were not just you know street hustlers or or, or you know. Uh, homeless kids they were kids that were kind of driven and drawn by manson out of good homes and it had a lot to do i think with the the times right you're in the 60s um this is the wars happening everybody's protesting against that and there's this push away from the perfect family unit of like the the 40s and the 50s into more um you know feminism and you don't need to be in a relationship to have sex and free love and all of that and and charles manson really he pushed that home for these people, you know, push against the establishment, push against your parents who want you to live this traditional boring life. You don't have to live a life that they want. You can live the life that you want. But you're right. A lot of them came from good families. Some not so much. Some came from good families. I don't necessarily know if coming from a good family means you had the best childhood. You know, if you have a, a mother and a father at home, you still might as a child and a teenager because you can be sort of narcissistic in those years. You might think, oh, I'm not getting what I want from these people. I need more. And you and you break out from that. But there are so many of these girls where people who knew them said, I never I never would have seen that coming. And this is the trend, right? I mean, we have Ted Bundy and people like that who everybody says, wow, we never saw this coming. Let's talk about the origins of the family and how Charles Manson became a cult leader, Stephanie. But before we do, here's another podcast that you guys should check out after you finish listening to Talk is Jericho, and that's Insight with Chris Van Vliet. Chris is a TV host, has interviewed pretty much everyone in the industry, always has amazing guests. I'm sure you've seen at least one of his episodes on YouTube. He does a great job bringing up the best in his guests. He asks great questions. He's got an awesome casual vibe to his show. Not really an interview, more of a conversation. And uh, just like kind of two people shooting the breeze like we do right here on Talk is Jericho. I've been on the show a few times. He's also had The Rock, John Cena, Britt Baker, my former tag team partner and uh, enemy MJF. who We will be uh, clashing at Blood and Guts tonight here on AEW Dynamite on May 5th. Uh, of course, my boss, Tony Khan. He had Jeff Jarrett, Ethan Page as well, who recently just made his AEW debut. Chris Van Vliet also has actors, musicians, and other interesting people from the entertainment industry. And in every episode, Chris always pulls out useful pieces of advice from his guests that you can apply to your own life. Chris's show was actually one of the first interviews I did after I signed to AEW in January of 2019. We did that in the backseat of a car. Uh, it was actually outside when I did... Um, a live talk is Jericho with Dory Funk in Ocala, Florida. 
The building was very small. It didn't have a dress room. So we just did an interview uh, in the backseat of Chris's car. There you go. Check out Insight with Chris Van Vliet. You can listen to it wherever you're listening to Talk is Jericho right now. You can find it on YouTube. Insight with Chris Van Vliet. For more info, go to chrisvanvliet.com. That's Chris, V-A-N-V-L-I-E-T.com. Go check it out now. Let's talk kind of about the, you mentioned the origin of, of Charles Manson and kind of what led him to become this this cult leader and this figure. How, how did it start out for him? Well, if you heard him tell it, it would be a lot more dramatic and uh, and sad <laughs> than, it, than it really was. I mean, obviously, he didn't grow up in the best circumstances. But when I covered it in my on my channel, I went all the way back to like his mother, because I, I do think that that it kind of stems from uh, how you're how you're raised and how you're brought up. And his mother was born to in a very religious family, you know, the kind of family who they're like, God's watching you. So don't misbehave or you're going to hell kind of right. thing. Right, right. But she rebelled against that from a very young age. And her brother ended up going to prison. And, you know, um, her father died when she was young. And then shortly after that, her sister died. And so her mother uh, Manson's grandmother was like, what am I doing wrong? I'm living the way I should. And I'm doing everything the Bible says. My kids are off the rails. My family's dying. So she really kind of doubled down. And, and with her remaining children as a single mother, she was like, I'm not going to let any anything else happen. And I think she kind of went a little too far. Like she didn't want her her daughter to go dancing or see boys or things like that. So we, you typically see this in, in a child when it's too strict, they, they rebel more. And and Manson's mother did kind of turn to a life of crime. She went to jail for a little bit for, with this crime that she committed with her brother. Um, and while she was in in prison, her son went with her mother, her his grandmother. And then for a little while, he also went to live with his aunt. And this was the time when he was young. He got... Um, he got teased a little bit in school. His uncle made him wear a dress to school once. Just really? To, yeah, just to like humiliate him because um, Manson said he didn't like school and because his teacher was, you know, kind of mean to him. Manson was a, a small statured sort of child and man growing up. You know, he was not this big guy and, mm -hmm. you know, he got picked on by the other kids and. But even from a young age, his cousin who lived with him said he was kind of crazy. Like he he just was unpredictable and he would do crazy things. Um, One day she locked him out of the house because she was trying to clean up. And he was like, you know, being a kid and being crazy, running around, making a mess. So she locked him out and he ended up taking like a, a knife or something and cutting through the screen violently. And she said she was terrified. Uh, she mm. thought he was going to, you know, kill her. And, you know, just those little things. He says his mother gave birth to him and didn't even give him a name on his birth certificate. That's absolutely not true. Uh, she did give him a name. He said that she traded him for like a a pitcher of beer. That never happened. Um, <laughs> but in his older years, I mean, he was known to say a lot of off the wall things. And I think he was trying to gain sympathy and you know, we can have sympathy for not having the perfect life, but it does it doesn't <laughs> excuse what right. what he went on to do. And then he obviously goes to prison for a while. And in prison, he does a lot of reading. He read about Scientology. He read. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he read Dale Carnegie. Um, what was it? How to win people or influence people. In influence people. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so he came out of jail with uh, this whole kind of. I don't think he ever believed anything he said, but he knew how to convince people that he believed what he said. So he just go around 
and and collect these girls at first. It started off with girls. Um, and this is the Haight-Ashbury region of, of California at the time. It's the the nexus of the free love movement. And he gets out of prison and he went in, you know, several, several years before. And he comes out and he's like, what's happening? Like there's hippies all over. There's all these street preachers, you know, like everybody's just completely different. The world's completely different than uh, than when I left it. And he would listen to these street preachers and he'd be just stunned at how these these street preachers would gather crowds around them. And Manson always wanted that because Manson always wanted to be famous and adored and loved. And he basically mimicked these preachers. He took what he learned from the street preachers, from Scientology, from Dale Carnegie, and he put it all together to form like the Manson dogma. Um, and then he just go around to collect people. And he, he did have a 10. He had a very good talent of meeting someone, talking to them for just a very short time and figuring out exactly what they needed to hear. Hmm. So he would see a girl sitting on a bench. Um, Squeaky Fromm was was the one. She was sitting on a bench. She just got into a fight with her parents and he walked up and he said to her, oh, like your old your old man's getting you down or something. And she was like, what? How did he know? <laughs> He's mm-hmm. brilliant. He's a mind reader. He's <laughs> magic. And then he said, uh, I'm the gardener of the hate and I just go around and collect all the all the wildflowers <laughs> to take into wow. the take into my garden and tend them, you know? And she was like, wow. And and these girls thought he was a godlike figure. They they truly um ended up feeling that he was godlike. And he would tell them, um, my name is Charles Manson, man son. Like I'm the son of man. I'm the son of God. And they'd be like, what? That's crazy. You know, and it was just so <laughs> ridiculous but we also have to understand like they were on a lot of drugs at this time right marijuana lsd it's one of <laughs> psychedelics it, it may be possible that that had a lot to do with why they bought into it well also too like you're you're, you're talking about people and i don't want to see weak-minded but they're looking for something that they don't have and that's the the basis of any great cult leader like you said they're going to tell you what you want to hear to kind of draw you in to then, you know, the Stockholm syndrome where you become under the spell of your leader to do whatever he tells you to do, even if you might think it's wrong. And it's fear too, right? Any right. great cult leader leads by fear. So Jim Jones was like, the world's going to end, guys. We've got to go to Guyana. And and they, mm-hmm. nobody's going to stop us from practicing our religion. And um, Manson told everybody that Helter Skelter was coming. And uh and they had to be prepared for that. And he would just preach about this for hours. And I mean, they had a whole, they were all over the place. They they started off kind of being homeless, drifting around. They stayed with Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys for quite a while. Um, they destroyed his house. They wrecked a bunch of his cars. And this was when Manson was trying to get a record deal uh, with, with Terry Melcher, Doris Day's son. Yeah, Manson was a, a musician, a failed musician, shall we say, who was looking for a recording contract, right? Yeah, he wanted he wanted a recording contract. He truly thought that he was, you know, very talented. He was a big fan of the Beatles, and I'm not going to say that that Charles Manson wasn't talented just because he was an, an evil person. Um, he had some he had some bangers. All right, there's some good songs out there. I think he was a better singer than he was a guitar player. But uh, get your game, girl. Like that's an amazing song. Okay, it's great, very catchy. So Guns N' Roses covered that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they couldn't admit to it. I remember it was on the Spaghetti Incident. It was like the hidden track, and then you find out it's a Charles Manson song. I've never heard that cover, but I've heard of you it. You haven't? No, yeah. Look at your game, girl. Yeah, yeah, and and it was a it was a good song, right? And perfect for that time. Mm-hmm. 
but there were a couple things wrong with Manson, why he wouldn't be become the person he wanted to be, the famous person that he wanted to be. And he was insane and he acted mm. crazy. So he'd go into the studio and they'd be like, oh, Charlie, can you, you know, just try this this key instead of this key? And he'd be like, what? What are you talking about? No, I'm perfect. He did not take constructive criticism mm-hmm. well. He threatened uh, one of the studio people with like a knife once when they gave him like notes. And <laughs> <laughs> and so and he'd always have his girls with him. Right. Like he'd bring this whole entourage. This is not an established musician. This is not somebody who has right. his clout already so he just have all these girls he'd come into the studio with like bare feet they started calling him pig pen like from charlie brown <laughs> <laughs> because he was just so like dirty all the time and like clothes were all like messy and he smelled bad because he wasn't showering even though i don't know why he wasn't because he was staying at dennis wilson's mansion for a long time Oh, my God. The the Manson family, just they screwed with Dennis Wilson's life. Let's talk about this, because Dennis Wilson, like you said, he was the drummer of the Beach Boys. He's kind of a little bit of, of the wild guy in the band. And like you said, he ends up befriending Manson or vice versa. And like you mentioned, they lived at his house for for a year, years. It was a, it was a, quite a long time. Quite a long time. And almost almost like squatting in his house, like you can't get rid of us type thing, right? For a long time, he didn't want to get rid of them. He liked Charlie. Let's talk about how that relationship started. But first, Mother's Day is this Sunday. You still have time to get that special mom in your life, one of Steven Singer Jewelers' awesome gold dip roses in the brand new sunshine yellow color. The new sunshine rose is a brilliant shade of yellow that dazzles with sparkles. And Steven's roses are real roses dipped and trimmed in 24 karat gold. It lasts a lifetime. Steven's always been in the love business, and this past year we've seen just how important love really is. In addition to brightening your loved one's day, Steven wants to put a little sunshine in everyone's days, so he's continuing to use a portion of each rose sold to support local restaurants by catering meals for all the incredible nurses, doctors, first responders, and hospital heroes. Go to IHateStevenSinger.com and send a sunshine gold dipped rose this is your last chance for free shipping to arrive in time for mother's day order by 2 p.m eastern on wednesday may 5th to get the sunshine yellow gold dipped rose delivered in time for mother's day it's a win 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 you'll give sunshine that lasts a lifetime to your sunshine to your loved one you'll be supporting local restaurants and you'll be thanking essential workers didn't get any better than that all of steven singer's roses come with a lifetime guarantee a free personalized gift message. And if you order by 2 p.m. Eastern on May 5th, you'll get fast and free shipping in time for Mother's Day. So order now at IHateStevenSinger.com. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. And go make your loved one happy. All right, Stephanie, tell us how that relationship between Charles Manson and Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys started. Um, so two of the girls, I forget which ones at this point, they were hitch, hitching rides, right? And uh, Dennis Wilson picks them up because in, at this point in time, a lot of the musicians in L.A., they were trying to do this whole like down to earth. We're just one of the people kind of things like, yeah, right, right, right. you know, the mamas and the papas lived in like a nice neighborhood, but nobody had like gates or like, you know, walls around their house. I forget what musician it was, uh, but a pretty popular one. He said he would just wake up sometimes and go downstairs and there'd be all these people like sitting in his house just waiting to like hang out with him, people he'd never even met. And it was funny. Right. It was cool. You know, they they do drugs, smoke some weed, talk, play some music. 
it was great. Um, and that's why they say that Manson really killed Hollywood, because after that, it became a completely different situation where, where people, especially famous people, became more guarded. Oh, wow. Wow. Interesting. And um, so Dennis Wilson picks them up and he's like, oh, these girls are cute. They're wild. They're having a great time. And they introduced him to Manson. Well, they didn't technically introduce him to Manson. They um, got dropped off. He actually brought them home with him for a while. And they and he like gave them something to eat. And they're like, well, this is a mansion. This is incredible. Right. So they go back to Manson after. And they're like, yo, we met this guy. And he's got a mansion. And he's a musician. He's like Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. And Manson was like, well, he's a musician. I want to be a musician. We yes. must meet this man, right? So he had the girls show him where Dennis Wilson lived. And these people go into it, like broke into his house and they're waiting in there for him because Dennis Wilson's not home. And he pulls up like later that evening and he said Manson walked out and, you know, kind of spread his arms like, welcome home, you know, welcome to your own home. <laughs> and Dennis Wilson was like, are you going to rob me? Like, are you going to kill me? And Manson was like, no. And he got down on his hands and knees and kissed Dennis Wilson's feet and um, and it was like, come in, come in, you know, we're all here for you. And at first, Dennis Wilson was like, this is weird. But then he saw, you know, all the girls in his living room and, and you know, all the drugs. And he was like, OK, like I can chill out here with this for a little bit. And they kind of just stayed. And he became enamored with Manson and he tried and he fought really hard to get Manson a record deal, even though the rest of the Beach Boys and his record label were like, what are you talking about, man? Like, we can't vouch for this guy. He's not that good and he's off his rocker. But Dennis Wilson was uh, under his spell for a while. Hmm. And this happened, too, I think, with the Beatles. Didn't they like go to some... Um, I guess, retreat, and then they ended up yeah, the, getting obsessed with this guru, right? The, the Maharishi. Yeah, and to be honest with you, Brian Wilson at the same time was having his issues with, I think it was his psychiatrist that had him completely, you know, living in a sandbox in the middle of his house and telling him what to do. Like, seemed to be kind of the, the sign of the times in the 60s, like you mentioned, was just to kind of turn it all over to the to the overall seer and if Dennis Wilson saw that as Manson, because that's that's a high powered guy to have under your control. And he did have him under his control. And and Charlie couldn't figure out why do I have this person in my pocket and I still can't get this record deal. And right. that mainly it mainly had to do with Terry Melcher. Terry Melcher was born. He's Doris Day's son. Right. So he knows about being private and keeping your private life and your personal life separate. He wasn't one of these young rock stars or celebrities who were just coming up and still wanted to be relatable. He was very, very private. And he met Manson a couple times and he was like, I don't see it. Like, right. I just got my own um, ability to kind of like produce my own bands. Um, my first one was a hit. I'm not trying to bring in this guy as my second one. It's going to make me look stupid. And if it doesn't work out, you know, that's my reputation. And he was also dealing with a lot of stuff with his mom at that time, whose ex-husband or deceased husband had basically stolen all of Doris Day's money. So Terry Melcher is trying to help his mother fight these battles in court and, you know, not be taken prisoner by the IRS wow, because right. her ex-husband hadn't paid her taxes for years and she was very much in debt. So he was going through a lot. He didn't have time for Manson's uh ridiculousness whereas, whereas Dennis Wilson did right Dennis Wilson had nothing else to do he has no other things really going on in his personal life like what else are you going to do these are built-in best friends and family who live with you and, and have sex with you whenever mm -hmm. you want essentially mm -hmm. you know what what more could you ask for but it became an issue when Manson and his family kept crashing Dennis's cars and these are nice nice cars 
And uh, then I, I think uh, everybody had syphilis, I believe, at one point. Um, <laughs> everybody in that house had syphilis. And uh, and Dennis Wilson was like, well, I don't know where I got it from. So I'm just going to have to bring everybody to the doctor and get them all treated for syphilis. And I think he said it was like the biggest syphilis bill uh, in the world. Because <laughs> just, you know, and, and then he started to get annoyed. And at one point they wouldn't leave. And so he ended up leaving. He left them in that place. Mm. And he, he got like a he he got a little like apartment somewhere else. He was just kind of like, I'll wait and hopefully they they leave. And they eventually did because Manson was also annoyed when he didn't get his record deal. And once Dennis Wilson couldn't do that for him, he said, Well, what what can you do for me? Like my family's right. here. They're happy. They're laying around the pool. They have as much food. How am I going to control happy people? How am I going to make happy people scared to do my bidding when they're just having like the most luxurious life? And that's when he said, let's get out of here and go to Death Valley where everything sucks. <laughs> and there's no like running water. There's no heat. There's no good food. You literally have only me. And all you can listen to is me for wow. hours and hours. Yeah, that's starting to deprive deprive them of, of of things, which is another classic cult leader, you know, trait. Mm -hmm. Now, is this when they moved to the Spawn Ranch? Is that was in, in Death Valley? Or is this another place? It's another place in Death Valley. Spawn Ranch was sort of off and on. Um, so they'd go and hang out at Spawn Ranch for a little bit, and even when they were staying at Dennis Wilson's, Spawn Ranch was sort of like the secondary base that they would just kind of go to. Um, but you know, George Spawn, the owner of the ranch, he he would go back and forth on whether he wanted them there. George was having sex with Lynette Squeaky Fromm. She was his his girl of the Manson crew so she actually ended up staying with him more more often than not but the farm hands and things at the ranch were also always complaining to george like these hippies are around they're scaring the customers off because this was a they had a horse riding business so customers would come and ride horses and right you know they didn't they didn't want them there and the the farm hands suspected that the manson family were up to some shady dealings which they they were they were stealing cars and turning them into dune buggies for their death valley adventure <laughs> Mm -hmm. And uh, and um, actually, one of the farmhands was at least the first that we know of, the first person we know of that that Manson killed um, himself. Really? Yeah. So why, he was telling on him to George Spawn, and he was like, "I can't have that." He was he was do, he was telling on him. You said. Yeah, the the guy was going to George Spawn and being like, "These people are trouble. Like, you have to make them leave." And what Manson was hoping was that George Spawn would just die and like leave everything to to Squeaky so that they could just stay there. But wow. That didn't happen. They ended up in Death Valley specifically because Manson told them that Helter Skelter was coming. The black population was going to rise up and take over the world and kill all the whites. And then they, you know, they were going to run the world. So Manson was like, this is about to happen and we can't be around when this happens. So we have to go into Death Valley and we have to go into this bottomless pit that's located in the desert where we'll live for hundreds of years because you never get old or die in the in the mm. bottomless pit. And and you'll become fairies. He told the girls that they would turn into fairies and they would have to work there on reproducing and, and making a lot of babies so that, you know, a hundred years later they could come out and then take over the world with mm. their newly formed army of fairies, I guess. And these girls legitimately said that they could feel like the fairy wings growing on their backs. Like they they hundred percent believe wow this uh, i don't think he did though but once again it doesn't matter what he believed it's just what he can make them believe too right 
so that was so that was what Manson uh, Helter Skelter by his definition was the 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 rising of like you said the black population to take over and kill the white population. Yes, and because you know obviously there's a lot of race riots going on at this time while it's you know the peace and love movement, the hippie movement, it's also a time where social justice was coming into its own and there was the I think the Watts riot was at that time. Mm-hmm. So Manson saw this and he said, okay, this is this is going to happen. But he was an enormous racist, too. As was reported, Dennis Wilson was, too. They would always wow. talk about, you know, how how racist they were together in private. Mm. And Dennis Wilson obviously didn't feel like he could talk about that with other people because, you know, that couldn't be a thing that right. he was known for. But so Manson said, well, the, the blacks will come out and they'll they'll try to run the world, but they're not smart enough to do it. So mm. we have to let them fail at this and then we can come up and, and you know, just take over. But that's going to take hundreds of years, maybe 100, maybe 200 years. So we just have to bide our time. And that was his his big thing. And he got that, you know, helter skelter. Now, and he obviously got that from the White Album. Did he think the Beatles were giving him secret messages? He said they were. He gotcha. told his family that they were. Once again, it's very difficult to determine what he actually believed. Did he believe some of it? Did he believe none of it? Did he believe all of it? That's always been a lingering question for me, because even after he's arrested and he's in prison, I don't know if you've seen these prison interviews. They're mm-hmm. hilarious. He just keeps going on and on, and and he talks in circles a lot. <laughs> You're talking about the vi- the videos that he made when he was in prison, or the interviews? Yeah, so he did interviews. You know, right? Gotcha. Yeah, I saw the one with Geraldo and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think Barbara Walters did one, but he he's you know he'd say things like, uh, "You don't need to get out of the room. Like you don't need to know where the door is in the room if you don't want to get out." You know, these like vague things, and people would be like, "What? That's like my like my mind's blown." <laughs> yeah, you know. Right, right, right. What did he believe? I'm I'm not I'm not sure. I I'm not and he didn't even do the drugs. Like he did some of the drugs, but he always gave all of these drugs to his followers because he wanted them to be so out of their minds. And he didn't never took as many drugs as they did because he wanted to be in control. And a control right. freak like that, they don't typically fall into drugs because of the fact that you know you do lose some. They lose control, right? All right. That's very interesting because, like you said, he. He always wanted to maintain that mental control. And when you say, you know, if you're going to turn into a fairy and you can really feel those wings and if you're high on LSD and I'm not, you're probably going to go, like you said, wow, this is this is real. This is happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think some of the Manson family were more guilty than others. I think some of them probably just never really bought into it, but they just liked, um, especially as they became higher in the hierarchy of Manson's family, they liked that power. Um, Susan, Susan Atkins, it was her name, Susan Atkins. Yeah. And Tex, Mm -hmm. Tex Watson. Watson, These are are two people that I wholeheartedly believe were psychopaths and probably would have gone on to commit crimes if they'd never met Manson. And that's a great point. And they're kind of the ones that spearheaded the murders, uh, the Tate murders and the LaBianca murders as well, correct? Yes. And um, the thing about about Sharon Tate and, you know, her her husband at the time, Roman Polanski, where they lived on Cielo Drive, it used to be Terry Melcher's house. Okay. Um, so Terry Melcher, Manson was mad at him after not getting the record deal. So he he was trying to find him at one point. He didn't know where Terry Melcher had moved when he left Cielo Drive. So he went to Cielo Drive and he was like hanging around the grounds. And this is when Sharon Tate lived there and, and Polanski was out of town. 
And uh, somebody that Sharon was with came out and was like, can I help you? And Manson was like, you know, I'm looking for for Terry Melcher. And they were like, well, he doesn't live here anymore. So Manson knew that Terry Melcher didn't live there. We also know Manson knew Terry Melcher didn't live there because the uh, the Manson family, before they committed the murders, would do these things called creepy crawlies where they'd go out at night and kind of like do these minor break-ins. Sometimes they wouldn't even take anything from the houses they went into. They just change things around, try to freak people out. And uh, one of these creepy crawlies they did was at Terry Melcher's new house. They took his telescope off of his back porch and then they like ran home like laughing. They're like, oh, we got him good, right? Mm. Terry Melcher never even knew that telescope was gone. And if he did, he certainly wouldn't think, oh, Charles Manson came and took my telescope, right? But that's how these people thought. You know, when you're really narcissistic and you see a, a post on Facebook and the, somebody's like, oh, I'm so mad at this person right now. And you're like, wait, are they talking about me? Like mm-hmm. you think everything's about you. Right. That's how they were. So they just assumed that when they took the telescope, he would know it was them and he was going to be terrified and he was going to be scared. He had no idea. He didn't even think about Manson at that point. So they knew he didn't live there. Uh, the night of the LaBianca and, and Tate murders, Manson simply told Tex and the girls, go out and, you know, do some damage, like go kill some people and, and leave something witchy. And he alleges that he never told them to kill anybody. Um, and they, mm. they swear up and down that he did. But he says, no, I just told him to go out and like cause havoc like we'd been doing with the creepy crawlies. I didn't know they were going to kill people. Who knows what's true? All I know is that they are the ones that did it and they could have not done it. Right. Right. So, and one more thing that was when I was doing some reading before, apparently it seems that Melcher and he, and just to clarify, he's a high, high uh, level producer at this point in time, music producer. And he went to the spawn ranch and saw Manson getting some fight. And that's where they kind of cut ties with him. Right. So Melcher had been supposed to come out to Spawn Ranch and hear Manson play. Gotcha. The the first time he was supposed to to go there and see him play, um, Manson put everybody into like overdrive. Like they had to clean the ranch. He had this uh, calfskin suit made for him, um, which was really expensive. And, um, you know, they didn't have the money to do that, but he had to have this calfskin like suit made. Uh, He actually showered that day. And then Terry mm. Melcher didn't show up, right? So that's when Manson was pissed, and that's when he he went into the the telescope thing. But Terry Melcher gotcha. did a, he did eventually come to Spawn Ranch to hear him play, and Manson had uh yeah had everybody the girls rehearse with him for hours before this happened, and they would just stand behind him and like sway as he was singing. And I guess <laughs> they had to really rehearse that thoroughly. But um, so Terry Melcher came and heard him play, and and I think he brought somebody else. So. Melcher didn't feel like Manson was right for his label, but he had this guy who kind of traveled around in a van and he would record these indie artists, artists who lived on like reservations and things like that. And he said, oh, well, this probably be a better option for him. Maybe he'll like him. But Manson and his his girls and his family got this dude so messed up on drugs that he could barely walk out of the house. So as Melcher is trying to help this guy to the car, his last name was Star. He was like a stunt man at the time. Do you know his name? The guy you got in a fight with, man? I don't, but it did say stunt man. So 
Yes. Yeah, so his last name was Star, S-T-A-R. He runs up with uh, with a gun and he's kind of like, I don't know, he's he's on drugs. They're all on drugs. So he's acting erratic. And Manson like takes him down and beats the hell out of him, like beat him within an inch of his life. Hmm. And, and Manson thought like, oh, you know, this is going to be impressive to Terry. I saved his life. But Terry was like, <laughs> no, <laughs> right. This is terrifying. He left Spawn Ranch. He never looked back. All right, let's get into the actual Manson family murder spree. We'll talk about the events leading up to the killings and what happened afterward. But first, I want to say thank you to Geico. I know most of you guys listening either own or rent your own homes, and that is hard work. But you know what's easy is bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. And it's a good thing as well because you already have so much to do around your home. Just go to geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you can save it's Geico easy. Just visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com, G-E-I-C-O.com. Save that money. Do it now. We can talk about the murders now. When when Manson tells Tex and, and the girls to go cause some havoc and leave something witchy, why do they decide to go to Sharon Tate's house? They never said. Wow, okay. They never said. Um, it may be that... I mean, this was this was tax decision, right? Because the women in the family were treated as second class citizens. Uh, and that's why Manson started bringing men into the, the call to the family to begin with, because he was surrounded by women. He was like, these women are great, you know, to get pregnant, to have sex with, to do drugs with. They're nice to look at. But I need a smart person to talk to. And I can't find right. a smart woman to talk to. So I got to bring some of these these men in and he'd make the women have sex with men to draw them into the cult. He he just used these women as if they were, uh, you know, his mm. tools. So Tex and Manson and a, and a couple of the other men, there weren't a lot of them. There's obviously more women, but they were always like kind of in control of the women. The men would eat first. So the women would cook the food and then they'd lay it out and the men would all eat first and then the women would have whatever was left. So women were not, you know, respected here. So it was Tex's call. Uh, where they ended up. Maybe it was just the fact that he remembered this was where Terry Melcher had lived. Maybe he was so messed up because him and Susan were into some much harder drugs at this point that they were getting from uh, the bikers. I think meth, like it was bad. So they were into much harder drugs. Maybe he just didn't remember that that Terry didn't live there anymore. I don't Mm, know. They never, they never really said. So they end up at this house and I guess, you know, we kind of hear some of the details and stuff, and I don't know how much of it you actually know, probably all of it. So what exactly were the were the events that occurred that night at the Tate house? Uh, well, <laughs> at this point, there were a bunch of people in Sharon Tate's house because Roman Polanski was out of town again. So Sharon Tate had... Um, Wojtek Frykowski, Wojtek Frykowski. This was a friend of Polanski's and Wojtek's current girlfriend, who was Abigail Folger, heiress to the Folger fortune. And um, there was also Jay Sebring. Jay Sebring was a celebrity hairstylist at that time. Awesome person, has an amazing life story. Um, no, he, he never really is known for anything else, but but what happened to oh, him? Oh, he died, right, yeah. He's got a great story. Jay Sebring was an ex-boyfriend of Sharon Tate's. They remained friends afterwards. Um, so these people are here with her. And there's a couple other people at the guest cottage, too. There's the guy who's watching the guest cottage and then a guy that uh, came over to visit the guy watching the guest cottage. And this is the first person they kill. Uh, I forget his name, but um, he was a young man and he was leaving 
leaving uh, Cielo Drive. And as he was pulling out of the gate, he kind of pushed the button to make the gate open. And Tex Watson, you know, walked up to his car and was like, freeze. And the kid was like, what am I doing? You know, I'm, I'm just leaving. And then Tex shot him. And this is always a very strange thing, why he would shoot this guy who's leaving, who doesn't mm. pose a threat. And additionally, Manson had given him a gun and said, here's a gun in case you need it, but try not to use it because we don't want to draw attention to ourselves. And the second he walks onto the property, he shoots somebody that he didn't have to and and uses wow. the gun. So it's kind of also indicative of the fact that I don't think Tex was really considering Manson as like this cult-like figure, because if he did, he would have probably followed his directions to the T and not straight away from his instructions. But um, after they killed this young man, his name is Stephen Parent was his name. Yes. Really cute kid. Mm-hmm. Really young, too. So after that, they go inside and uh, Tex uh, tells, you know, a couple of them to look around to see if there's any open windows. But uh, they finally get inside. And Susan Atkins, she starts wandering around the house. She passes by a bedroom and Abigail Folgers inside the bedroom. And Abigail looks up and Susan waves at her and Abigail waves back because, you know, this is once again, it's uh, L.A. in the 60s. Like everybody's kind of used to just people showing up. And and this is Abigail Folger of the Folger Coffee Company, right? An heiress? She is the heiress, yeah. Right. So she waves at her. She waves back. Uh, Susan keeps going down the hall. She sees Jay Sebring and uh, Sharon Tate in another bedroom and they're deep in conversation um, and, and she, they don't notice her. So she goes back and she sees Wojtek and he's like, I don't know, sleeping on the couch. Yes, he's sleeping on the couch. So then she goes back to um, let everybody in. Tex comes in. Uh, the other girls come in. They had left one of them out by the road to be a lookout. Um, and this is the the girl. Oh, I forget her name. But she's the one that will eventually not go to prison for for these murders. She's kind of the uh, the, the star witness, right? Yes, yes. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Even though I think she probably should have done some time, but she didn't. Um, So they all bring them out into, you know, the Susan's got a knife. They're all supposed to have a knife. Um, And she brings them out into the living room. And that's when they're all crowded together. And um, Patricia Krenwinkel had actually forgotten her knife or she'd lost it. So she had to go back outside. She had to run back outside and ask, um, I think it was Linda Kasabian that was doing the lookout. And she had to ask her, like, oh, can I borrow your knife? Mm-hmm. And then she ran back up. So they've got them all there. And Sharon Tate's pregnant. She's heavily pregnant at this time. I think eight and a half months pregnant. She's she's due very soon. And obviously they're scared. I think Susan, Tex ended up hitting Wojtek Verkowski in the face. Then Jay Sebring told them to be careful because they were tying um Sharon Tate up and he was like, can't you see she's pregnant? And that's when he gets shot for the first time by Tex because Tex is is an idiot, right? Like, don't use the gun. Don't draw attention to yourself. He's just shooting everybody. And then then Wojtek and Susan are like on on the ground wrestling and Susan does an interview too. And she she always tries to act like she's so innocent and, you know, just, Mm -hmm. I don't know what happened to me. I just was under the control of these mean men. I don't know. I'm so innocent. And she said, oh, well, I could have stabbed him, you know, but I I didn't want to. So we were wrestling around for the knife. And then she calls Tex over to help her. And, uh, you know, Tex starts beating up on on Wojtek Rakowski. Wojtek actually runs out onto the yard. Tex chases him and just like stabs him to death. And as this is happening, Linda Kasabian comes up from the car. She sees this and she's like, holy shit, like this is this is serious. 
but she doesn't go and like get a neighbor and call mm-hmm. the police. She doesn't, she just goes back to the car and, and waits, right? She doesn't wow. even run away. Like I'm not yeah. I'm done with these people. I'm out of here. She goes back to the car and waits for them. And then, you know, Sharon Tate was the last one to be killed. And uh, she, she even begged with, with Susan and she said, uh, you know, take me with you and let me have my baby. And then you yeah. can kill me. You know, she just wanted to save her, her child's life. And Susan looked at her and said, woman, I have no pity for you. Mm. Um, and she even later, Susan said she looked down at Sharon after she'd stabbed her and said, oh, I bet you the baby's still alive in her stomach and I should cut the baby out and bring it with us. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. This woman was twisted. Yeah, but it's, it's messed up. And then, um, you know. They ended up going back to Spawn Ranch or wherever they were staying at this point. I believe it was still Spawn Ranch because they were back and forth between Death Valley and Spawn Ranch. And they told Manson what they'd done. And he was like, "Okay, now I'm going to take a couple more people out and, you know, they're going to kill more people. Uh, And that was the the LaBiancas. But he never killed anybody physically himself on this night. No, right. Manson did not. But like you mentioned, he was behind the whole thing. But did they not paint the uh, things on the wall and blood and that sort of thing. Yeah, they were trying to uh, allegedly start Helter Skelter. So they wanted people to think that, you know, the, the Black Panthers had done these these murders. So I think they wrote Helter Skelter on the wall or attempted to, but they wanted uh, the police to believe that this had been the Black Panthers so that they started going after them and it kind of sparked the race riot because Manson was like, I've been waiting a long time for Helter Skelter. It's not happening. So we need to kind of push this along. And that's when they wrote pig on the front door in taste blood. Like that was, that was the, you mentioned something witchy, right? Yeah. And just to get a little bit, a few more details, uh, just kind of scrolling is Frakowski was stabbed 51 times and struck 13 times in the head with the butt of Watson's gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, Krenwinkel, is that or Folger? Folger stabbed 28 times. Uh, Sharon Tate stabbed 16 times. So this is not just a matter of murder. This is just an all frenzy of just goring people at this point. Yeah, it was savage. There was no no reason right. for it. So so let me ask you this because I'm not completely clear. Did they then go straight to the La Bianca? house or was that the next night um no they went back and you know told manson what they did and he claims right. that they they went up to him and they, they had like blood you know there's blood all over them there's blood all over the car and they're like we did it and he's like did what i didn't tell you to do anything mm-hmm. you know whatever you of did course. you did because you wanted to he said you know? right yeah <laughs> Um, I believe it was either later that night or the next night that he he took a couple more people, um, Leslie Van Houten and Stephen Clem Grogan. They just called him Clem. Mm-hmm. Um, he brought them to another on another kind of spree. And once again, he didn't go with them. He just drove them around and then found this like neighborhood. I, I believe it was Waverly Drive. And he was like, OK, you know, pick a house and. Uh, we're going to go in this house here and, and, and do do your worst. And he was saying that that, that he was uh, displeased with the panic of, of the murder victims the night before. And the fact they tried to flee and all that sort of thing. Correct. He was he was upset at that. And he was upset that, you know, the news coverage didn't you know point to the Black Panthers as the culprit. That They just like kind of reported the murders. And, and it was like there was murders, but they weren't, you know, doing something that would spark a race riot, which is what he wanted. This is very interesting, though, too, because like you said, this is Hollywood in, in 69 where everybody's open. And you're, but then suddenly the, this 
famous actress is stabbed and killed. This is 24 hours of news coverage now to the next night to go to the La Bianca house. Um, was the city kind of in disarray or, or was it something that hadn't even really made its rounds yet? Or, or how was that kind of publicized? No, I mean, obviously it made the news. Yeah, it did. It made the news, but it wasn't to the extent and the the sensationalized extent that he wanted it to. And, gotcha. and, and like you said, he he didn't like how kind of messy it was, how um, Abigail Folger and Wojtek Krakowski were on the front lawn. It just looked really messy. Um, they'd written pig, like you said, and he, mm. he didn't think that was witchy enough. He didn't think that was indicative enough that it had been the Black Panthers. So he was like, well, let me bring you guys out the next night and I'll show you how it's done. And I'll be very clear about what I want. So what did they do the next night then? Um, they went to uh, Waverly Drive and then they pulled up to the house of the La Biancas. Just completely random again, right, Stephanie? Like just random? Allegedly. Yeah. 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 Allegedly. Um, and I believe it was Tex Watson again. It was, I'm trying to remember. I don't think, yeah, Patricia Krenwinkel was there, I believe. Rosemary, uh, I mean, uh, Linda Kasabian. Yes. Susan Atkins. And uh, Manson kind of went inside the house first and said he tied them up already. So he's like, they're all ready for you. You know, you're good. And then he left. <laughs> mm. He left. And, um, you know, at, at this point, a lot of things happened. Like, I think it was Linda Kasabian that claimed um, she either never stabbed anybody or somebody had held her hand and made her stab somebody, um, which was Rosemary LaBianca, um, Mrs. LaBianca. But uh, it was bad. And then they they wrote rise and death to pigs. Still nothing that would suggest, in my opinion, you know, a, a race riot. But I believe. Right. Uh, yeah. And also carved war into the abdomen of, 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 of Lino LaBianca. And then once again, just going through uh, 16 times in the back for the for the wife, Rosemary. 41 stab wounds for uh for the for for Lino many of them post mortem so once again it's just a savage butcher butchery i guess at this point well patricia krenwinkel after um Lino was dead and tex was like showering you know to clean up she took this um uh, it's like a kitchen instrument um a carving fork and that's when she started stabbing Lino with the carving fork. Like you said, post-mortem, um, he's already dead. But this is, you know, I guess they're trying to make it look. Uh, she, It's alleged that she also put a steak knife in his throat. Like, Oh, my gosh. And all these girls later, you know, they're saying, like, we were forced. But it's, I just, I have such a hard time believing that you didn't do this of your own free will. Because at any right. time, you could have just left that house and, and ran away. And they said they were afraid. Um, Manson always found them. And that is true. Uh, mm -hmm. A couple of them tried to get away before. And he, he always, he had his ear to the ground. He had a lot of connections around the area. He knew where to find them and he would find them. And uh, I think it was, I think it was Linda once tried to escape and he brought her back. And then he brought her to the top of like this big hill. And he was like, if you ever want to leave me again, you can just jump, you know, basically saying right. the only way out of this is, is you find yourself. Yeah. So how was the family uh, captured and kind of briefly go through the, the, the sentencing and all that sort of stuff? Oh, well, I mean, there was obviously an investigation. Um, they, they, they figured it out. And it's a very long story of how they put all of this together. 
But when they finally found them, the funny thing was they almost missed Manson. So they rounded everybody else up. They they had arrested them and then they couldn't find Manson anywhere. And one of the deputies who was inside, he was like the last one in there. He just happened to open up the kitchen cupboards. And Manson, being the small statured man that he was, he kind of folded himself up and hid in himself. Wow. In, uh, in one of the kitchen cupboards. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty crazy. Um, and, and also very typical, once again, where the cult leader ends up hiding like a rat, you know? Yep. And because of the fact that, uh, yeah, what a dick, right? Like, you brought them all here, and you yeah. can't even go down with them. Right. You're hiding in a cupboard like a little bitch, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And then um, some of them, because they were always separated, you know, somewhere on Spawn Ranch, somewhere in Death Valley, somewhere over here, somewhere over there. He always sent them on different missions and things. Um, not all of them were arrested. I don't believe that, uh, yeah, Squeaky Fromm was was free still. And she, like, mm. led this um, this assault right. on the law after after uh, he, he was arrested and the rest of the family were arrested. Like, standing outside of the courthouse, they all shaved their heads. Right. They, all, they all, like, carved these uh, uh, pentagrams, I think, into their foreheads. They would sit outside of the courthouse and just sway and sing and give interviews. And Squeaky was just... You know, she was a really pretty girl. She was actually an incredibly talented singer. She had a lot going for her. She just spoke in this sweet voice, but you hear her interviews and there's such a dichotomy between what she's saying and how she sounds. It's just stunning. Um, and, and they were, you know, they went hard for him. Like they were not going to uh, to let this happen. They wanted everybody to know. And even the girls who were on trial, you know, they were like, no, we did this of our own free will. Some of them tried to blame Tex, like Susan. <laughs> Susan and Tex had been tight back in the day. They always did their hard drugs together. But as soon as Susan had her back to the wall, she kind of uh, she threw she threw mm. Tex under the bus. But, you know, in, in the end, they all ended up going to prison because of, of the one girl who who said, you know, this is what actually happened. And this is who was doing what. Um, let's see. So I think some of them died in prison. Some of them are still trying to get out, man, to this day. It's insane to me. Well, once again, just kind of looking through as we've been talking is that Tex Watson is still in prison at 75 years old. Yeah. He's a born again Christian. Did you know he's running his own ministry online? And it's interesting. Well, you know, I mean, of course he is. Right. But, um, it's interesting to me too, though, Stephanie, that like there's been, maybe there hasn't, but you would know this more than I would. There's been much less publicized murderers, for example, that have gotten paroled after 20 years or 25 years. And some of them are just as bad as what we just heard. Is the fact these guys are still in jail because it's part of this Manson murder, you know, legend from, like I said earlier, from American history and pop culture? Do you think they should not be in jail? Absolutely. But I'm just saying there's other criminals that get out after 10 years. You know how that happens, right? So what's the difference? I mean, I, I do admit that. I do think our, our justice system is incredibly flawed. I've seen, um, you know, <laughs> and that has to do a lot with prison overcrowding. So it depends what, what gotcha. state you're into. Right. You know, right. it's like we don't just don't have the room and there's too many people doing stupid shit. We have to let some of them out. Um, and, that, and that never works, by the way. They usually go on to to uh, reoffend. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it's the just the like you said the savagery of it. You know, yeah. it was. It's not like uh, you've got a guy who just was robbing somebody and they made a quick movement. He got scared and shot him in the head. Not that that's okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> Obviously right. not. Yeah. But there's different levels, you know, of of offending, and I think that that these these people, 
they uh, they took it to such a, a, a higher level. Yeah, it probably does have something to do with their, you know, infamous status. Um, I think it would just make people incredibly uncomfortable for them to be walking free. And I don't know what kind of lives they could even have. Right. Well, especially now after being in prison for 50 odd years, what would they even do? You know, um, what would they do? Who would who would hire them? Yes. You got, you know, and that's the thing, too. And what you mentioned before, it wasn't pentagrams. It was X's that they had. Oh, yeah. Because Manson had showed up with an X saying that I'm Xing myself out of your society. Then all the girls did it, too. Then he shaved his head because he said that the devil always has a bald head. And like you mentioned, then the girls did it, too. So it was kind of almost a circus at this trial, um, which I'm sure the you know American public ate up as they always do when something like this happens. It was an absolute circus, and then you had you know the the lawyers, <laughs> the mm-hmm. lawyers were eating it up to um, Vincent Bugliosi's book, uh, Helter Skelter, I think it's called. Yeah, it's an interesting read. You can tell he's feeling himself a lot, you know, in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was the was he the prosecutor. Yeah, the prosecutor. Gotcha, yeah. Um, and and he he um he talks a lot about how like great he was, you know, in the courtroom. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, that's fine. I I do think he did grow a relationship or a close relationship with was it Linda Kasabian? I'm trying to figure out. L- Linda Kasabian was the one that that testified and was basically let go. Yeah, so he got very close with her and, uh, you know, he went to bat for her and he was like, I've talked to this woman, like, I know she was just led astray, you know, and I I just don't think that, I think you should, I know they needed her, they needed her testimony Mm -hmm. to, to get the rest of them, but I personally don't feel good about somebody like that, you know out there in the open, like not, not knowing what they well, did. She was there. She was an accessory as much as, as, as the rest of them. Yep. And I mean, some of the people who she was in the, the family with, they said she did a lot more than she claims she did. Right. We don't know. We don't know what the truth is, but we we saw this in another, you said you're from Canada, right? Yes. So do you remember, um, Carla Homoka? And, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this woman is like out and has been out forever, you know? Out yeah. of prison because she basically gave testimony against against her husband, and she's like got a new name. She's bringing her kids to school. Like I just don't feel comfortable with that, especially considering the things Carla Homoka did, like horrible to her own sister, um, to to other women that she just held captive in her house and took part in like raping them and yeah. torturing them. And she's walking free, dropping her kids off at school, and That's as a insane. person. It's insane. And as a person who lives in that area, I'd want to know. It's 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 normal for me to know like where a sex offender lives. There's a registry for that. But there's no registry for like if you've committed murder and just happen to yeah. get released from prison. And by the way, she she and, and Paul Bernardo, her husband, they, they're, they're responsible for three murders, which te- technically makes them serial killers. Mm-hmm. If you have more than three or more, you're a serial. So we have a serial killer dropping her kids off at school. And, and that's my point, what I was saying with Tex Watson, for example, still being in jail uh, and she's out there. Just it, it's, it's very, you know, it's, it's chilling, to be honest with you. Yeah, it is. Um, but me, you know, I couldldn't sit here and say, oh, because Carla Homoka's free, I think Tex Watson should be. I don't think Carla Homoka should be free. I agree. <laughs> I agree with you a thousand percent. I agree with you a thousand percent. And Tex Watson is still getting into trouble. Like, I forget exactly what he's doing, but he he somehow managed to have conjugal visits with his wife. He's been having kids like while he's in prison. They had this ministry and then they got in trouble for like tax fraud because, you know, they're not paying taxes because they're claiming to be tax exempt because they're 
church. And, you know, clearly this dude hasn't learned anything. Like if you're really, truly sorry, you try to do the right thing in every sense of the word in every area of your life. You don't take shortcuts. You don't do illegal things. And you just truly have remorse for what you did. And you want to live your best life and be the best person you can. This is not what's happening with Tex Watson. Right. And you're talking about a guy that was uh, he was he was up for the death sentence, death penalty. And then politically that got absolved. But he's still responsible for seven murders is what he was, uh, you know, guilty of seven murders by the court. So um, we're starting to wind down here. I just want to kind of talk about the last days of Charles Manson. It's something that you just mentioned, like text having conjugal visits. Charles was actually engaged to be married at some point a year or two before he died. And you see this with like with Richard Ramirez, where he has all these girls sending him naked pictures. Like, what is it with these women that are that are obsessed and wanting to marry Charles Manson? It's real weird, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to admit, you know, sometimes people look at at me and they're like, I think it's weird that you're interested in true crime. <laughs> yeah, and I and I understand that's your opinion, you know, but I don't think it is. But that's your opinion. Um, and, and typically I try not to judge anybody. I try to see everybody from an understanding point of view. This shit I cannot understand. I don't want to understand. It is truly it's 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 mind blowing. It's 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 mind blowing. And yeah. the same thing with Chris Watts, you know, Chris Watts who killed his two little daughters and oh his pregnant wife. And this dude gets fan mail and still has people online, women online saying the Shanann deserved to die because she was a nagging woman. Yeah, man. That's yeah. yeah. And Chris yeah. and Chris should have had somebody better like them. And he wouldn't have killed his daughters, his three and four year old daughters mm -hmm. and his wife if she hadn't been a nagging bitch. And then they're they're basically sending him letters saying like, oh, I would have treated you so good. It's just so disturbing. I don't understand it. You know that this person has not only the potential to take life, but did. And this is what you're attracted to. Um, I wonder if it would be the same if that person was not in prison, though. I wonder if it's like the danger factor, kind of like the bad boy. You know, I'm attracted to the bad boy. But if he was not behind bars where he safely can't hurt me, right. would they still be all about it? No. And that's even even, you know, with with the, the, the marriage uh, license that Manson got, I think it says 2014 to a 26-year-old girl. You know, it's like. Maybe he has, like you mentioned, he, he he has this gift of telling people what they want to hear and, and wrapping them up into his spell. And, you know, he's a celebrity. I think there had something to do with because he had a lot of like engagements and girlfriends mm. and stuff in prison. I think some of it had to do with his uh, his estate because gotcha. he didn't have right like a lot of money. But um, I think like the the Manson paraphernalia, things like that, like the story itself, it would sell for a lot of money the paraphernalia things associated yeah. with him would sell for a lot of money so if you are his wife um and that that's your estate then you would maybe have the rights to that um i know there was some kids who came out of the woodwork because manson did mm -hmm. have some children during his time probably way more than we know to be honest um you know coming out and saying you know i'm the daughter the son of charles manson so therefore like this is this is my rights so if anybody was to make a movie about manson they'd have to like, right Yes, they would own everything. Yeah. So I think that was probably more to do with it than yeah. than anything. But right. Than than the love connection or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how much <laughs> love connection there was. <laughs> uh, so Manson died in prison uh, a couple of years ago, 
And once again, here we are still talking about it in 2021, and we'll be talking about it in, you know, 3021, I'm sure. Uh, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but now that we've discussed this for the past hour plus, why does this case have such lasting legacy to where people still are interested in it, even though it happened over 50 years ago? Because it was just so like this, this perfect storm, you know, and I think that uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood kind of illustrates that. And mm-hmm. I know it's such a it's such a great movie. Um Tarantino did a great job. Leonardo DiCaprio did a great job. Brad Pitt was flawless in this, right? (laughs) So good. Um, And then they ended it with uh, what would have happened if they they had picked the wrong house, right? Because at the end, Leonardo DiCaprio is the next door neighbor of Sharon Tate. We don't figure that out until the very end, which is so cool. Um, It was brilliant. But what would have happened if if they picked a different house and they got the shit beat out of them in that house, you know? Mm -hmm. And then Sharon Tate lives and Sharon Tate has her baby and Sharon Tate becomes a mother and the LaBiancas get to see their children grow up and get married and, and have families and, you know, do amazing things. It was this weird, perfect storm of just all these coincidences and happenstances that led them to these these two homes and these two people. And I think a lot of us look at it in that way. Like, what if that hadn't happened? Like, these bright lights were taken from the mm. world for no reason. They suffered. This poor pregnant woman, Sharon Tate, was an amazingly beautiful person. Abigail Folger was amazing. Yeah. She was loaded, but she was such a charitable person. Like, she gave back so much. Um, she's just a very kind person. And, um, you know, what would have happened if they'd been allowed to live? And I think that that what if kind of thing, it, it just bugs us. What if <laughs> what mm-hmm. if Terry Melcher had signed Manson? Would he right. have been happy to be famous and then he wouldn't have done this? Who knows? You know, it's interesting. Kind of the final statement on my end is like you mentioned Manson wanted to be famous so badly. And by proxy of what he did, he became famous. And like you said, he was great at putting on a show when Geraldo is in there or Barbara Walters is in there. Like people watched him and they see this guy's so crazy, but he, I still think he knew what he was doing. Like you said, talking all these paradoxes. I still remember to this day that I don't, I don't break the laws. I make the laws. I'm the lawmaker, man. And he's got this weird hair and you're just like, this is riveting, you know? Right, because you know in your mind, right, what he's saying doesn't make sense, but just his cadence, like yes. almost the musical way he speaks, That's right. like it's almost hypnotizing, like the old cartoons where the snake would come out of the basket because somebody's <laughs> playing a flute. Like you feel like the snake when you're listening to him, and the logical part of your brain is like none of this really makes any sense, but you're you want to keep listening. It's yeah, it's kind of weird. I don't believe that he ever truly believed anything he said. He wanted to be famous. Um, he wanted those people around him because he wanted to be famous. And he just wanted to keep them with him at all costs. And I mean, in the end, they they kind of they kind of were all together, weren't they? In yeah. Britain. Yeah, you're right. Stephanie, it's been great talking to you. This has been uh, this has been riveting. I'd love to have you uh, come back and do more shows with me because you obviously know what you're talking about. And it's very interesting. And uh, I know I enjoyed it. Yeah. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Stephanie. 